ready? I'm Brendan Madigan, and this is Afterglow. In our eighth and final episode of season two, we sit down with Barry Blanchard, one of the most bold and accomplished alpine climbers the world has ever seen. Blanchard is best known for his dangerous, cutting-edge ascents on high alpine faces across the globe. Many of Barry's climbs were so before their time that they've consequently become test pieces for generations following in his footsteps. These include the first ascent of infinite patience on the emperor face of Mount Robson, the first ascent of the North Pillar of North Twin, and a heroic attempt on the 15,000-foot Rupal face on Nanga Parbat. Barry is perhaps most well-known for outrageous alpine climbing feats with partners Mark Twight, Steve House, David Cheeseman, and Scott Backies. The Brotherhood, as they are often referred to, actively challenged death on bold and cold alpine faces in what can only be considered a golden era of alpine climbing. Barry and I talk at length about his death-defying alpine climbing feats amidst a life wrought with hardship, personal struggle, and ultimate redemption. I hope you enjoy a deep and intimate conversation with one of the most fascinating, kind, and intellectual mountain people I have ever had the honor of recording with. I know you're Canadian, but can you tell us about your youth? Um, yeah, well, I was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, a little bit of time in Saskatchewan before I have memory. But uh, yeah, my mom was a, a Métis gal from southern Saskatchewan. And, and, uh, sorry, what's that mean? Is that a- uh, Métis is a distinct culture um, in Canada. It's, it means mixed. Okay. So it's the uh, culture that was born out of... Uh, European fur traders in the early 1600s coming to Canada and, uh, you know, uh, having kids with native gals mostly and, uh, it birthed its own culture and, uh, yeah, for, I guess nearly 300 years, two, 300 years, we were buffalo hunters. We hunted buffalo off horseback on the prairies and, uh, we pounded buffalo meat with prairie berries to make pemmican and pemmican was the, uh, the fuel source that uh, powered the fur brigades to go across Canada and paddle across our massive nation and canoe every year and trade for furs and bring them back and send them off to Europe. Yeah, wild. And you had a pretty rowdy youth, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, a pretty lawless child and definitely a juvenile delinquent. <laughs> and uh, yeah, climbing uh, largely took a lot of that uh, you know, just wildness and pointed it up, which was a great thing. And, uh, yeah, you know, a lot of my buddies, uh, we were from a, a pretty poor part of town and, uh, yeah, not a lot of, uh, real positive male role models in our lives. Um, you know, a lot of, uh, fatherless kids, you know, like myself, I did have a father and I, I did know my father. But cumulatively in my life, you know, I think I only got to spend 
caught, you know, within memory, maybe three months in his time. Wow. Whereas when I was young, for the first couple of years, he was there before he and my mom split up. Um, so, yeah, one of the interesting differences between maybe me and some of my siblings, just about, you know, our approach to life. You know, one of my partners asked me, well, why are you you know, doing what you do and your brother is in trouble with the law and stuff. And I said, well, I had two parents to pick me up every time I cried when I was a kid. And he only had mom and mom had four other kids to pick up or right. take care of. Yeah. So, yeah, just basic stuff like that. Wild kids, yeah, not all of which was, uh, you know, ended up with us in the back of a police car being bought home. And my mom eventually telling me when I was about 14 that she wasn't going to juvenile court with me anymore, that I was on my own. <laughs> yeah. She wasn't even going to come. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, a lot of running wild in the River Valley, making rafts and floating down the river, like stuff right out of Mark Twain. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. in a city. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm always fascinated by how we're brought up as people, right? Because there's no, there's no rule book for the parents. And it's, yeah, a lot yeah. of times it's messy and, and ugly and beautiful at the same time. But I always self-analyze myself to, you know, question why, why am I the way I am or whatever. And, and I'm relentlessly never satisfied, which I love and don't love about myself, you know? And I think, yeah, obviously it's a, where I was raised and how I was raised. So yeah, yeah. Had, that, that upbringing had to be massively influential, I would think. Yeah, I just when you said that, I, I had some good advice the other day to start a contentment journal, mm-hmm. a gratitude journal. Yeah. Every day, write down three things that you're grateful for. Right. Which uh, I have yet to do, but uh, I've already picked the book. I just need to start writing down. Right. It. But it's powerful to, to acknowledge that. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, it's it's so easy to to lose sight of you know, just how fortunate we are to be in North America. Right. You know, you travel the world and you just realize so quickly that, God, I was so lucky, even though I was born into poverty and, you know, a lot of times there might not have been enough food in the house, stuff like that. So fortunate to be born in Canada just right. just by a fluke of birth. Because, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many other people in the world who are born into such harsher situations. Right. Yeah, it's something to be grateful for where you're born. Was growing up in a in a mixed race household? Did that kind of supplement that? I would imagine. Uh, supplement. Um, it's interesting. The Métis are you know half European and and half Native, so it's like we have a foot in both worlds, but we never really fit into either right. very well. And uh, you know, it, it's amazing how loving and supportive my family is, yet kind of with benign neglect. Not, not, we're, we're, I think getting better all the time, but the amount of love that's in my family and, uh, is, is, uh, just so encouraging. And then, you know, the lack of a toolbox to deal with, uh, modern Western or Canadian society, and especially with regards to, to money, you know, it's, uh, yeah, my family hasn't been very understanding or good with money. It's coming along, but you know, I I, uh, I can get uh, uh, I don't know vindictive and a little dark about it because to my eyes it's just such a fixed game mm-hmm. that uh, yeah just recently in Canada there's this big scam about the wealthiest guy in the country his company which makes bread you know fixing the price of bread with the big supermarket distributors it's like what the I mean bread right. basic staple right. 
and these guys are fixing the price. This guy's the richest guy in the country. Right. It's like, <laughs> come they don't, on, they don't man. get rich by chance. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, I can get dark and vindictive about that. Yeah. No, but, it's, uh, it's true, though. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the other sides of growing up in a, you know, Metis lineage is uh, our families pretty much trace matrilineally, and it's the women that hold our family together. Right. A lot of the men have left. Well, not all, especially the, the men who are Métis, mm-hmm. my uncles. You know, part and parcel of it is the bottom of the, you know, social economic pyramid in Canada and some of the, the bad things that go along with that. Like a lot of, you know, I saw domestic violence and there was alcoholism. Right. You know, I know I've got that on my genes. It's right. like, it's just there. Right. So that's a, that's a, something that can definitely take you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, climbing, it's interesting, you know, as a guide... When I think in my profession, there's been a couple of guides that I know have had to go and do a 28-day vacation, right. but only a couple that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. In any other profession, you know, there would be just such a huge percentage more people who had to go for treatment. Right. And uh, guiding and climbing, you know, it's tough to to maintain, you know, drinking alcohol and right. being outside and, yeah. you know, working hard and climbing every day. So, yeah, yeah interesting. No doubt. I've read that you refer to alpinism as pushing the door of a radiant, dangerous cathedral, which yeah. I think is really fascinating. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, you know, it is a risk sport. Alpinism is so easy to to get killed. And, uh, you know, every so often you hear someone arrogantly say, oh, that guy's hard to kill. And none of us are hard to kill. We're right. glasses of water. We're jars of water. We are so easy to kill especially from a mountain, from a mountain's perspective and not that a mountain is out to kill us, but if we're in the way when it moves, man, we don't have a bunch of chance. Right. So yeah, it is a very, very dangerous, uh, pursuit. And, uh, I think a pursuit right now that needs to have a risk tolerance reset. And I'm, you know, guilty of having pushed too far in my past. And, uh, a number of times I had good luck and if I had a bad luck, I wouldn't be here. And that was sometimes literally just standing one foot to the left or right of where the avalanche really expressed itself. Right. So yeah, I'm so fortunate and, and grateful for having good luck when I needed it. And then over time you get quite good at what you do. So to be good and lucky that's the best you can do. Right. But I think I have had to pick either. I think I'd pick lucky over good. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the flip side of it is, you know, the it is this radiant cathedral where you can see the very best in yourself come out and see, I don't know, just get clarity and realize your place in, in the universe. You know, it's, uh, I don't know, it, it gets your spirit, you know, your spirit comes out in certain, you know, periods of your alpinism, almost every, any really challenging alpine climb, your spirit's going to come to the fore and it's going to be what carries you forward or makes a decision to carry you sideways or down. But uh, yeah, it's not going to be your, your emotions or your intellect or even your physical abilities anymore, your body. It's going to be your spirit that guides you. So that's that's pretty cool. And to see that in yourself, realize it in yourself, and it's just... I don't know. It's it's these moments of grace, I guess. Hemingway called it grace under pressure, 
and alpinism is definitely grace under pressure. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes, you know, you're just so staggered by the beauty of what is around you. I mentioned last night in the slideshow our first bivouac on Mount Robson in 2002 where there was no wind, there was no spin drift, which is so rare on an alpine face not to have snow constantly sifting down the face. Calm, clear night with the northern lights just firing on all these colors that, you know, I see the northern lights a fair amount doing what I do, but to see them in, you know, jades and yellows and, you know, purples is just, I mean, it's, it's, takes your breath away. You yeah. need to stop shoveling and just sit there with your jaw dropped. Right. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, but also to see the heroic in your buddies, you know, they've been in situations and storms where we have to climb up just to, to survive. And, you know, my buddy James, you know, leading a pitch that if it was roadside, the same kind of storm with the car, you know, parked at the road and say, James, climb this pitch, he would fail. He wouldn't be able to do it. Right. But 3,000 feet up the northeast face of Mount Kefren in the same situation with the well-being of his two partners resting on his shoulders and himself, he goes up and does more than what he's capable of. Right. Goes beyond what he's capable of. And yeah pretty cool to see it's really rising above your ability is pretty special yeah yeah is that the the reason for the formal comparison to religion i think the yeah you know a lot of climbers would call the mountains their religion and yeah yeah i think there's a, a lot to that um i think that uh just the the spirit you know your spirit rising and feeling your spirit and you know, just being in sync with it. I think that's probably, you know, the, the, the biggest parallel with religion. And then just seeing the, uh, realizing the weave of the mountains and the universe basically, and feeling a part of that. And, uh, I guess realizing that it's not there by chance that, uh, there's there is design to it. There's intelligence to it, and whatever you want to call that intelligence. Right. Um, it's interesting to me too that you know, um, I guess being a very you know this is a modern thing to say. I'm a very spiritual person, mm-hmm. but I'm not a very religious person. Right. And with you know probably good reason. A lot mm-hmm. of religions have a lot of not great things that they've done. Yeah. Definitely. You know, my family, my grandmother Josephine Pelche who uh, was with my grandfather, Napoleon Amiot, for, they had uh, nine kids together, and my my grandfather had been uh, forced into a marriage because he was caught sleeping with a gal he wasn't supposed to be sleeping with. And uh, he left that marriage, and they never got divorced. His first wife is possibly still alive. And uh, one day my grandmother was at the church, and uh, the priest told her that, her three children she should give to the other mother because really they belong to to that woman because she was uh, my grandfather's uh, wife. And my grandmother, Josephine, said, you know, screw you, you old bastard. And she walked out of the church and she never walked back in. Right. My grandfather continued to take my mom and her brothers and sisters to, to church. Right. But uh, my grandmother never went back. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, interesting. But I was getting to, I don't know, my partners, um, I speak mostly for myself, but when push has really come to shove and we've got the boat way out there and, 
you know, you don't know if you're going to get back down off the mountain and you're scared, you know, um, I pray, you know, and, uh, I don't know if I pray necessarily. Yeah, I'm sure I pray to what we all identify as God and what uh, natives would identify as, you know, the great spirit. But, uh, yeah, I pray. And praying helps. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Although when I was younger and I would make deals with God, you know, just get me down off this climb. God, I promise I'll never come up out of these mountains again. And then eventually God just quit listening because he knew I was lying. Right. I'd get down and like next weekend I'd be back. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, funny. Um, You talk at length uh, about the formative failure of your first attempt on the north face of, I think it's pronounced Ledroit. Ledroit. Yeah. Yeah, Um, yeah. How did this influence you in your beginning years as an alpinist? Oh, right. Yeah, the north face of Les Duat was, uh, yeah, just uh, one of the big, you know, formative uh, touchstone ascents of my career. It really changed the, whatever course my life had, it changed it. And uh, my buddy Kevin and I had uh, both quit our jobs and committed to going to Chamonix in France and climbing till we ran out of money so we camped illegally on the edge of Chamonix past the cemetery so I think the French left us alone because of that and um, yeah we just climbed you know all summer long and a series of uh, alpine routes that grew in in difficulty through Gaston Rebuffat's classic hundred uh, finest climbs in the Mont Blanc Massif and the 99th hardest climb number 99 was the north face of Les Duat. and uh, towards the end of the summer um, into September we you know we started talking about trying the north face of Les Duat. and I'm like oh Kevin I don't know if we're ready man I you know that's a huge route I mean then Mesner soloed it in 69 and you know only x number of people have climbed this route and uh, <clears throat> Kevin never had those fears like no come on Blanche we can do it yeah yeah we should go yeah when the next time the weather comes good we, we got to get on it we got to get on it and uh <clears throat> that summer there was uh, a guy John Lachlan seven years older than me kind of from Calgary and uh he was a hero of mine you know I read about his ascents in the newspaper saw his slideshows and got to talk to him in Chamonix and got to know him some and uh yeah, he was leaving towards the end of the summer, and uh, you know, I I saw him just by chance in Chamonix, and you know, he was just uh, electric on the fact that he and his partner Dwayne Congdon had just done the third ascent of the McIntyre Colton route on the north face of La Grande Jarasse, which is a very very hard route and kind of the the high mark of the Rassemblement, the international climbers meet they were attending. So it was so cool to see Canadians, you know up there <laughs> doing the best stuff <clears throat> and John you know he was just so excited about it and raved at me for a while and then as he always did he was a really classy guy he kind of said well what are you and Kevin thinking of and I didn't want to say it because if I said the word Le Duat, it would exist in the world and I, you know beyond our our tent where we've been talking about this and John had actually done the north face of Le Duat earlier that summer <clears throat> and I said Oh, we're thinking about the Jackson Shea route on the north face of Le Duat. And he just nailed me with these electric blue eyes that, you know, once he, he put his concentration on you, they were it was like laser beams. You couldn't escape. They just drill you and nail you to the wall. And, uh, 
he said, you guys should do it. It's perfect for you, man. It is absolutely perfect. And I go, I don't know, John, it's a big route. And he said, nope, no, you guys are ready. You know, you can do this thing. And I'm like, I don't know. It's so, you know, you know, it's harder than we've ever climbed. It's the 99th, you know, book in the route. And I'm putting my hands in my pockets and looking at my shoes. <laughs> and then John just says, no, it's three pieces of Canada on loan to France. First, you do the north face of Athabasca, like a 1500 foot ice face. And you and Kevin have done that. Then you do Takaka Falls, a uh, big ice route in Canada. You and Kevin have done that. Then you top it off with Cascade Waterfall, and you and Kevin have done that. All you got to do is put it all together in one day, lad. You can do it. And for whatever reason, that worked for me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kevin and I left at 10 at night and crossed the Argentier Basin, turned off our headlamps after we crossed the Bergschrund because there was a full moon, and we climbed by moonlight and into the next day, and Kevin just did this amazing lead up a... A shower curtain of vertical ice found a piton in behind the curtain and did his magic and you know towards uh late afternoon we we're getting towards the top of the route and he cut loose a big dinner plate of fractured ice from his crampon and didn't realize he he'd fractured it off and it came bouncing down the couloir gaining rotational energy and speed with every bound and uh sounding like a like a like a circular saw and i looked up and took it right in the face like crunch and right in the nose and all i saw was black and then pin shots of white and like oh my god oh my god you know i thought i was gonna get knocked out and started screaming and shouting and then i opened my eyes and i could see blood on my anorak and and then it's your face, you know, you don't know how bad it is. Right. <laughs> like, as it's, you can't see your own face unless you have a mirror. So I'm like, oh God, you know, I think my nose is, is still there. Oh, it's still there. And so I, I get up to Kevin, I climb up to Kevin, worried as all get out about, you know, how bad this injury is, worrying if I'm going to be ugly for the rest of my life with this big, you know, slash across my face. And I get up to Kevin and all the sucre he can provide me is like, oh, Blanche, that looks pretty bad, man. <laughs> But it, uh, yeah, it was a broken nose, and we closed the, the the wound with Steri strips and continued over the top and got down the other side. And about 24 hours after starting, we bed down in the Kuverkukul hut where alpinists have bed down for the last 100 years. And I knew the history of the men who'd been there before, some many of whom were my heroes. And I just decided that alpinism was what I was going to do with my life. Right. Well, what a formative experience to have that vote of confidence from someone that you admired or looked up to yeah to yeah. push you along and then have yeah. even more rowdy experiences on the route and i love the line from your book um and i believe it was after uh summiting and descending rakaposhi mm -hmm. and uh I'll, I'll read the quote because i think it's it's so it resonates so strongly with people who live in the mountains and, and you write Physically, I felt as though I should be an intensive care unit. Yet when I looked at the broken slate below my feet, I felt no separation. I understood the mountain, and I was at home there. Another of the old cowhands' words came to me. In mountaineering, I had found my calling. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously a huge shaping of your of your life, I would guess. Yeah, the calling. It's a you know an old word that is from Western North America, maybe beyond, but. You know, when I was growing up, a lot of the older, 
you know, guys that I would come in contact with, would talk about a calling that, you know, when you hear your calling, answer your call. Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss. That's what I was doing. And yeah, coming down from Rakaposhi, I should have been in an intensive care unit because, you know, I had, my nostrils were just reeking of ammonia and I know my blood was, you know, acidic and I'd lost 35 pounds of body weight and my clothes were falling off me, but my spirit was soaring, you know, right. and, and my soul, you know, through the soles of my boots, yeah, felt no separation between the broken shale that I was walking on and the broken shale and the mountain were a power source. They actually, you know, buoyed me up and kept me walking. Has that calling changed over the course of your life? I mean, obviously you're committed to the, to the sport and to the lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely shaped my career and, uh, definitely my life. It has changed, uh, in the last, uh, 10 years. Uh, yeah, 10, 12 years. You know, I, I haven't done many, uh, big Alpine routes in the last decade. And, uh, that's a kind of a combination of becoming a father and uh, becoming uh, my own risk tolerance getting sucked in. Although the, the flip side of that is just, uh, you know, I know so much about the environment, that environment from having spent thousands and thousands and thousands of days in it that I have uh, more understanding and ability. My discernment for risk is is pretty well evolved for a mountainside. Right. Um, Yet, you know, I just, I have no interest anymore in any lethal risks. And, you know, I don't know how interested I was in them as a young man. I don't think really interested, but I was so motivated and keen that I found myself in situations that if I made a mistake or didn't perform, I was going to get killed. Mm -hmm. Not many, but, you know, you get caught sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And then the other side of uh, that is, you know, I'm 58 now and, uh, I'll never, ever be the athlete again that I was in my 30s and in my 40s and not even close in my 20s. So, yeah, I don't have as much lung capacity anymore. Things have to slow down. Right. I'm a late model with high mileage. So, you know, I think a couple knee replacements will be on the horizon in the next uh, decade, probably. Then time, just trying to make a living and be a dad and, mm -hmm. and do some writing and still get out climbing with my buddies. Uh I think I've had four days or five days out on ice with my buddies this season. So those are good times. And I will, you know, once my girls are older, uh, do some more alpine climbing. But, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that changes over time. It's really inspirational to think of guys like uh, Nick Clouch, who, you know, went on expeditions right to the end. And, you know, George Lowe, who's still climbing. And my buddy Steve Swenson, who's still climbing in the Karakoram at a really, you know, amazing level of difficulty. But I think overall for all of us, as we age as alpinists, the angle is going to come down and the size is going to come down. Right. It's yeah, inevitable. Yeah, yeah. When it's, it's, I love the emphasis that you put on the, the value of your partnerships. I mean, you speak to it in, in very uh, strong and, and beautiful terms, to be honest. Why are those partnerships so important to you? You know, the, the, some of the closest bonds that I, I was not born into, but I developed were with the guys that I climbed with in, you know, my 20s, 30s, and into my 40s. Yeah, those bonds are just 
you know, they're, they're unbreakable over time. And I don't see some of those guys all that much anymore. Like Mark Twight, I don't see that much. Ward Robinson, I don't see that much. Kevin Doyle, I see still quite a bit. Mostly because of geography. Everyone lives in vastly different places. I know that if I ever really needed those guys, and I said, guys, you know, I need you here, that they would come. Yeah. So, and I would do the same for them. Yeah. Move hell and heaven and earth to, to be there for your buddy if his back's against the wall. Right. Yeah, yeah there's, there's such powerful bonds, and I've done nothing remotely close to what you've done, but it's, to me, you know, being on Denali, for instance, on the ski descent with five yeah. friends, and those, it's almost as if you can transport your entire being back you can remember what it smells like and the senses and it's a, such a visceral experience and like you said you can pick up after years have elapsed and and you don't miss a beat yeah yeah and i've always wondered what the you know why that is yeah i guess you know those situations you're just you know so present and so alive it's like you become a wolf pack like you're not you don't live in the past or the future pretty much at all. You, you got a plan for the future, but you're so much in the present. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, you know, with, with my climbing buddies, words almost become unnecessary. It's almost all body language, right? You know, you come up and sure you have some words, but you just know the lay of the land and the, the plan and the what's happening just by the way a guy's moving and, what his face is saying, although he's not speaking kind right. of deal. So, yeah, that kind of communication, that intensity. You know, that alpinism, you know, it's like when you, you know, you leave the valley floor and at some point you step over this threshold and you enter this sacred space and it's like you live a mini lifetime for the four or five or 23 days that you're <laughs> trying to, although 23 days was a capsule style ascent, so a little different. But yeah, you leave this mini life with all the intensity and uh, emotion and uh, beauty and, you know, heartache and pain, definitely pain and suffering of a lot of full life spans. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's intense. And it yeah, keeps, yeah, yeah. Th that experience keeps drawing us back. I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, the concept of coming back to quote unquote real life and yeah. either being confused by it or having a hard time with the re-entry or... Yeah. That's fascinating to me. Yeah, the lowlands. Yeah, back to the friendship thing, you know, I don't know that the experience of, of I'm, I'm sure it's not different, you know, no, no matter what you're doing for your intense experiences and your bonding with the your partners, you know, alpinism is a great crucible for that because it's so intense for, you know, brief periods of time. And uh, when my friend Dave Cheeseman died, I kind of, I uh, had regrets about having only five years and admittedly a lot of very intense experiences that drew us very close very quickly. But was that better than spending 30 years as artists in whatever uh, discipline we chose mm -hmm. and having that bond grow over time? I would love to still have him here. Right. Yeah. 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 And he was a very close partner that disappeared on Mount Logan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously he played a huge role in your climbing yeah. career. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of my great mentors who taught me taught me so much. You know, Kevin and I were the young tigers and David was the the master conductor and he was able to 
take us onto the side of a mountain and and orchestrate the ascent use it he was just such a good leader mm-hmm. and you know i, I think a, a a voice to david's leadership is that and this is, would be a hallmark of i guess any great leader is that you were happy and willing and eager to follow him to have him you know direct and re you know say okay we're at this side point on the side of the mountain which is a real gift because mountain faces are so huge and we're so small at any one point it's like where exactly are we well i kind of know we're here but Mm -hmm. dave had the ability to say no we're here and we need to get over here so we should have barry lead this because you know barry's going to be the best at this and barry wants this and uh yeah we just never had any rebellion or question about that kind of stuff right yeah so i think you've said that the north pillar on north twin was mm -hmm. your finest climb together is that true yeah yeah but um for almost as much because it was our last climb together Mm. that we didn't get to climb uh you know any more big alpine routes together before he was uh killed on logan so it's the last time i got to climb with david and uh because i snapped a finger down low on the climb and ruptured a tendon you know i couldn't do a lot of the hard leading so you know, I got to see David just climb like he was he was a climbing genius, mm-hmm. you know, and I got to see him express that genius, you know, pitch after pitch, just sending pitch after pitch. Right. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, folks who would venture onto the North Face of North Twin would venture off soon because of the amount of loose rock. But as Mark Wilford once said, loose rock ain't all bad. It keeps you on your toes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's another thing to deal with. And David could just deal. Right. Yeah. Well, and I've always been fascinated, too, by that epiphany of, you know, why that would happen to your finger on what would be your last climb together so that he yeah. could shine bright. Yeah, probably because, well, one of the reasons I was guiding all summer and not climbing hard, long he alpine routes like he <laughs> he was. Yeah, yeah. My fingers weren't, yeah, they. I, hope, I wish they had been stronger because it basically snapped because I was cranking like a fiend on right. it and snap you know and i think of david the amount of energy he had and then even more so with john lachlan and especially with alex Lowe. you know the only way i can come up with a conclusion for the amount of energy that alex had day after day and i climbed with the guy and you know i was at the peak of my ability and i could kind of keep up with him which was a massive compliment that, you know, I was one of the guys who could kind of keep up with him. Right. I just have concluded that to have that amount of energy and that amount of motivation and enthusiasm, you know, albeit mercurial, he just, somewhere in his being, he knew he was only going to get 40 years. Right. So he could just never stop moving. Mm-hmm. That's helped me to try to remember Alex and David and John. Alex, though... You know, he, uh, like a lot of uh, alpinists, you know, there was a big jackal inside there that needed feeding. Right. And he he dressed it up a lot of mm-hmm. the time quite well. But right. It was there. Yeah, he, he was hungry. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. And and I know in your book you talk about how the, the spirits of both of those guys, Alex and, and Dave, um, that they almost... Their spirits almost knew they were slated for 
for an early exit. I mean, obviously, alpinists have to come to grips with death quicker and in probably more frequency than than other climbers. But why do you think that is? Just a tool of the trade? Uh, no, it's the complexity of the environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot of people look at mountains, but most people look at mountains and think they don't move, but they do. From the point of view of avalanche phenomena or risk, they can, 24 hours can be a long time in the life of a mountain. Things can, can go from like low avalanche hazard to extreme on a big alpine phase in 24 hours. Right. So it's just a complicated, dynamic environment right. that, uh, you know, we just don't have a whole bunch of control in. Right. We try to dance through. Yeah, if we get in the wrong place at the wrong time, doesn't matter who we are, who right. we are, we're going to get smacked. Personally, I've had the sense of playing with people in the mountains who are pushing the envelope and and worried about them, you know, because if you're pushing the envelope, there's always an enhanced risk. Did you feel that growing up with these guys and climbing with them? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think, you know, in our 30s, Mark and I, Mark Twight and I were definitely kind of too nonchalant and uh, arrogant, uh, I don't know, threatening to death. (laughs) How dumb is that? (laughs) Like screaming and shouting at death and challenging it. Come on, you (laughs) Mm -hmm. Why do you think that was? Um, I think, you know, a lot of it was arrogance (laughs) and just... uh, you know, just trying to, ah, man, it's a very good question. I'm, I'm searching for the right kind of, and I know the headspace, rebellious and uh, punk. Mm-hmm. We were so into punk music at that time. Mark, you know, we still both are. Mark is uh, an encyclopedic knowledge. He is, you know, he told me at one time that his God spoke to him through through the music. And, uh, you know, he, he believes that that's true for him. His God spoke to him through the music. Yeah, we didn't want to be told what to do by anybody, death included. Mm-hmm. Although we would listen. <laughs> right. <laughs> we may, you know, push back. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, we would listen. Yeah. You kind of have to. <laughs> right. Have you experienced those guys that you've lost in the mountains since? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely... You know, had David touch me after his death uh, a number of times. And one specific time was I was writing a letter of uh, to him after he died, about six months after he died. I was really lost in concentration, concentrating on the letter. You know, our, our theme song for when we were running out of food at that time, which we often did, and, you know, we're losing body weight and you know, had to get off a mountain was running on empty by Jackson Brown Mm -hmm. and we would sing it and it would be our battle cry. And yeah, I just lost consciousness. I had the radio on and I was writing and suddenly it just leaped into my consciousness that running on empty was coming out of the radio. Wow. And I knew it was David and it just, you know, got me to, to the end of the letter. And yeah, then I, you know, every so often with both he and Alex, I would feel their presence in the mountains just so undeniably. Soon after Alex died, I was working in New Zealand and I'm on a movie and I'd have like 40 minutes for lunch and we were up in the remarkable ski area and I'd, you know, usually eat 
all my lunch, you know, sometime in the early morning, like nine in the morning, but they cater lunch and stuff. So I'd take my 40 minutes, I'd run up to the ridge line and run along the ridge line and just get out of the Hollywood scene for a minute. And uh, I remember running up to this ridge line and coming over and just feeling something and looking around and realizing, Alex, Alex, <laughs> you know, Alex would have ran up that snow slope and run across that ridge line and gone mm -hmm. twice as far as I went <laughs> by the time he came down to get back into Hollywood. Right. But yeah, yeah, he was there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Those types of feelings of those guys, you know, around for a while and I, I don't really get them anymore. And, uh, I guess to me, I think their, their souls have been recycled and they're back somewhere, mm -hmm. but they're not you know, out in the ether anymore. It's trippy stuff, but there has to be something there. There's way too many accounts of yeah, yeah. those kinds of things. Yeah, I, I believe that. You yeah, know, I, I believe it. You know, I, I feel my grandfather so much of the time and my grandmother. Mm -hmm. you know, I feel them right over my right and left shoulders. Right. You know, holding me up. He had a similar experience where, I mean, it was my dog that died, mm -hmm. but I was closer to my dog than most humans in my life <laughs> they're yeah. so loyal and they don't lie yeah they're incapable yeah. of lying yeah <laughs> and uh she we put her to sleep here mm -hmm. and she's you know she was there for maybe five or six hours before we took her down the down the hill to reno and did that whole deal but the next morning i was sitting on the couch you know kind of despondent and drinking coffee and at the time we had it was october and we had zero bird life outside and we live on a creek so there's a lot of animals and whatnot but we hadn't had bird activity and and literally i was staring out the window and probably 50 of these chickadees and nuthatches they were all just right outside you know where yeah, she yeah. would lay on the deck yeah it's crazy yeah you describe your uh first ascent uh of north twin in a kind of an eerily uh, militaristic way how's alpine climbing like war for you well yeah especially the lower slopes of uh north twin when we were there which were the dog days of summer so you know last uh, days of july first days of august so a lot of heat around the second ascent by josh wharton and uh, john walsh they were there in the first week of september they didn't have rockfall at all which i think was was a really smart thing to do and uh we had rock fall it was like a beach landing my, my grandfather was at dieppe which was the huge beach landing before d-day where a lot of canadians lost their lives it was like that really you know we'd be sprinting up these shallow angled snow and, and shale slopes for the next steep band with you know rocks raining down and not small pebbles some of them softball and brick size and cinder block and you know it really is take your head off Oh, yeah, a little bit of lunacy. And it felt like, yeah, it felt like landing at a beach, you know. And once we got higher up, the face is so steep, the rockfall was way out behind us, which was great, as was the waterfalls, too. These just, you know, curtains of raindrops, waterfall raindrops, just spray coming off the upper wall and backlit by sun in the morning. It's just one of those breathtaking, you know, moments of awe. Yeah, you know, it's a lot of loose rock and a lot of complexity, and it can feel like war, trying to trying to outwit, uh, you know, a very formidable, 
you know, I guess in war you'd call it an enemy. You can't really call it an enemy when you're mountain climbing, but it can be, you know, war all the time. You know, my, my buddy Mark Twight, most disciplined man I've ever met, that's largely his approach is, you know, he's, he's a warrior up there. And he gets to see a lot of beauty up there, kind of the beauty that only warriors get to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, it's kind of half and half. I'd spent so much time up on the sides of steep mountains that it's like a, it's like a spousal relationship. <laughs> it can be very, very loving and intimate and and awe inspiring at times. And then it can get bitchy, <laughs> right? You know? Yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. One of my clients, I was guiding up the north face of Mount Temple. The only time I ever guided the north face of Mount Temple it was early in the morning after the frost came off and a rock, you know, rock fall had started. And we we're trying to move through to where we get out of rock fall and I got hit in the helmet. One point he made the comment. It's like Barry looked up like he was insulted and like, you know, <laughs> and his reaction was to cower and mine was like, the, yeah, you son of a. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the the part in the book too, where you write about Mark and, and kind of comparing the different alpinist he is to to who you were and that he was always on it was always warfare and and that because of that he was or is kind of a, this modern samurai yeah it's good uh, good uh, analogy for mark except i think mark's real gift is propaganda he's mm-hmm. a propagandist he's a master propagandist but on the same side of things you know amazingly disciplined man yeah, yeah just uh you know what he's done with his uh crossfit career which he's kind of stepped away from now but you know trained superman and batman right literally yeah yeah yeah, yeah like uh you know all these the guy for 300 300 or yeah, yeah yeah made yeah. all those guys look like you know male gods right <laughs> yeah, i just yeah. love that he's a road cyclist too yeah yeah such a, par- such a paradigm shift but yeah yeah but not too yeah yeah but you and mark and scott mm-hmm. bacchus is that how you pronounce his name bacchus bacchus you're often referred to as uh, the Brotherhood. What's yeah. that? What's that mean to you? <laughs> oh, it's uh, to me it, it uh, it's complimentary and it's uh, it's pretty cool, you know, to be part of that Brotherhood. And uh, you know, you could expand that, of course, to include include Steve House and uh, definitely Kevin Doyle, although he had largely quit hard climbing before he got the chance to climb with Scott or Steve. You know, it's probably best defined in uh, the right stuff because, you know, I think uh, um, Wolf, uh, Tom Wolf, actually got to something there where, you know, for a pilot to have the right stuff, you had to fly in combat. Mm-hmm. If you hadn't flown in combat, you didn't make the mark yet. You weren't. You didn't have the right stuff. It's an interesting accolade, and then... The other side of it is, you know, yeah, those are the men that I grew to love on the sides of mountains. So it's a lot deeper than just having the right stuff. Right. It's, it's a, a bond, a brotherhood. Have you been able to find relationships and fulfillment in your non-climbing life in that same light? Yeah, somewhere in your 40s, I guess, when I started having kids, when I had my first child at 45, so yeah, life uh, life got uh, away from alpinism and, and very much more into family. So I've been able to find 
that kind of bond and closeness with uh, some of my spousal partners, although two of those spousal relationships haven't lasted. Hopefully, you know, um, this one <laughs> is the one. And uh, we're definitely getting closer all the time. But in my 50s now, you have some really good friends in town who, you know, they're climbers, but they were, you know, they're not world-class alpinists. They're not part of the brotherhood, but yeah, they got my back. You know, Guy Clark has a, a great song that says, I've got a pretty good friend who's seen me at my worst. Can't decide if I'm a blessing or a curse, but he always shows up when the chips are down. That's the kind of stuff I like to have around. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you know. It's good stuff. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but you have formed the strongest bonds, it sounds like, with your partners on these alpine faces. And yeah. I was astounded reading about the... You know, the attempt on uh, the Rupal face in Nanga Parbat. And for, for those people who don't know what that means, it's five L caps stacked on top of each other. <laughs> That's great. The universal... At um, altitude, right? Yeah, the universal measure of climbing grandness, American right. <laughs> measure of climbing yeah. grandness, the L cap. How many L caps is that? Right. Of which but, I've climbed. That's a little so. facetious, a little facetious because L cap is vertical and overhanging. Mm -hmm. and the average angle of the RuPaul face is probably 50 degrees. Okay. So I wouldn't want to try to ski it and I don't encourage anyone to. <laughs> right. <laughs> but can you talk about the team, you know, you and Mark and Ward and Kevin Doyle? Yeah. You know, Probably uh, three of the, you know, half a dozen or 10 strongest partners I've ever had. At that point in time, you know, I was, uh, oh man, do the math, 29. Kind of your apex, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Kevin was 30. Ward was, I think, 31 or 32. Mark was 27. Ward was working full time as a tree faller. And the other loggers thought they should take him away with a butterfly net because he'd go running after a day of logging. Logging's not easy word. He would go running. So, yeah, they were out there with the butterfly net trying to take him away. Classic. And, you know, Mark and I were <clears throat> training two to four hours a day when we weren't climbing to become... Uh, stronger alpinist. Kevin went running a couple times before we went to Nagaparbat. He was a pretty gifted guy. Yeah, and you know, you realize, I think maybe on that ascent, you know, with Kevin, we realized that the mind is just by far the strongest muscle in the body. If you have, I guess, you know, the mind, but more the heart. Kevin just has so much heart. You know, he's got like Muhammad Ali's heart. You know, it's just, indomitable but uh yeah i can't imagine being on that any stronger team i think the those bonds are formed because you know as much as i i love uh the other really strong people that i love in my life they i haven't gone to that place with them i haven't gone to that sacred space where i've seen these guys become heroic i've seen my my other friends become heroic in in different probably more meaningful ways like heroic acts for their families and stuff but uh yeah i was a young guy you know who was out with three other young guys we all believed in alpinism to a religious level it was what our lives were about and is what our art and our everything was about we believed in the mountain unconditionally and we went up there and uh tried really hard and got spanked really, really hard. And we're very, very fortunate. We had some good luck. 
if Marx was on rappel when the avalanche hit us the first time, if he had lost control of his rappel and came and added his body weight, probably would have broke the sling that held the three of us on the mountain, and mm. three of us would have went, as Marx said, into the giant alpine Cuisinart. <laughs> Crazy. Was, was failure in some ways more rewarding than success on that route? Oh, no, it would have been fabulous to get to the top, as Mark said. Man, we would have had shaving commercials and chicks and cars and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's all nice to think about. But, you know, I think in the course of our lives, it probably we learned more by not making the summit of Nanga Parbat than we did by making the summit of Nanga Parbat. Had we had good weather that day, we would have made it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think we would have learned as much about ourselves and our partnership as being tried by a big Himalayan storm. You know, one of the easy analogies that they can put on a poster about mountaineering is the summit. Success. Ah, (laughs) you know, (laughs) then the whatever they put about success underneath the thing. And uh, then failure. But, you know, that those are such, I don't know, you know, just... The summit especially compared to the valley floor, I don't know where you call failure not making the summit, but, you know, the mountain and the, the climb are really, the gold is it's number of the meters along the way, every foot along the way. And some of those feet are going to give you the gold. And it's rarely the summit that's going to give you the gold. The summit is like, oh, wow, cool. It's time to go down. Mm-hmm. How are we going to get down? <laughs> So, yeah, it's the halfway mark. But, uh, you know, a lot of the most valuable climbs where I learned the most about my partners and formed the strongest bonds with my partners, we didn't make the top. Right. We turned around some way. And is that a failure? It's like human life. So much a human life. All the human life. Failure is one thing. Success is another. But all the human life happens in, in between those two mm-hmm. two points. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. It's yeah. So, and that's what I think it's always... <laughs> beautiful about traveling in the mountains with partners is it's it's just a proxy for self maybe actualization or realization yeah definitely i really appreciate in your book how open you are with your past infidelity and its kind of torturous effects on you and i appreciate that because i think not enough people own their fuck-ups and mistakes and there's a lot of power in that yeah hemingway said I wished I died before I ever cheated on my first wife. That's, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, you have this ideal view of what you should be and uh, what you want to be ideally. I think life, especially alpine, alpinism, yeah, definitely points out to you that ideals are really, really hard to live up to. Mm-hmm. And uh, perhaps perfection exists for gods but it doesn't exist for mortals right right on yeah yeah you also write openly in the book about writing out your will before soloing kusum kangaroo is that how you pronounce kusum kangaroo kusum kangaroo did you think for some reason the universe didn't wasn't stoked to have you in it to go and straddle that line yeah 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 and that was coming to grips with infidelity couple acts of infidelity and uh not you know owning those and trying to falling short of my ideal so yeah I, I didn't like myself very much at that point and uh 
you know, Mark and I spent a lot of, a lot of painful kind of hours trying to figure out how you, how do you kill this part of yourself? Why is this there? And what does it mean? Does it mean anything? And it obviously does. I guess as an alpinist, I was plenty willing to to have the mountain adjudicate (laughs) whether the universe wanted me in it or not. Yeah, it's a tough, tough place to be. Doubly tough because largely of my own making or of my own making pretty much. And uh, it was a difficult ascent, you know. It was one where um, I got in trouble with pulmonary edema probably. And I remember being in my... A uh, little snow cave halfway up this this big Himalayan face by myself. Done some really good climbing. Climbed pretty much as well as I could climb by myself. Just bemoaning the fact that Kevin wasn't there, Mark wasn't there, because I was I needed shoulders to to lean against, and I only had my own. Right. So yeah, I got down from Kusum Kanguru. It was a pretty intense experience. I remember coming into the base camp, and uh, the only other person in the valley was my Sirdar Tenzing and uh, it was a couple days overdue and uh, he'd made an altar and he was burning juniper I remember just seeing that and knowing that he was burning it for me and I just sat down on my pack and cried Mm -hmm. and uh, picked up my pack and marched on and tried to be a better man yeah and I love that in the book that you paint that picture but then on the when you come out of the other end, you talk about that unbearable lightness of being in a, I think you're at a glimpse of the deeper weave of the universe. That's yeah. tremendously powerful stuff. Mm, thank you. Yeah. I think that's uh, the spirit, the spirit rising for sure. I guess the universe wanted me in it. So right. I'm still Obviously. here for better or worse. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> you're pushing 60 and the cat has finally made an appearance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start purring in the microphone. Yeah. How do you look back on the the obsession and the risk acceptance um, and the fears of your peak years? Um, I, I, oh man, I feel that uh, the brotherhood, we probably pushed too far, put the boat out too far. I don't want the boat that far out there. Yeah, I think... Uh, we need to have a realignment of, uh, you know, risk and the acceptance of risk or, you know, there's a lot of technical terms for dis- de- describing risk, but yeah, alpinism's got to, I think, step back and take a look because there's, there's too many really talented uh, alpinists dying in the mountains. Yeah, I don't want anyone else to die and, you know, it's, it's more people are going to die. It's a dangerous pursuit. And, uh, you know, I feel partly responsible for that, that, you know, we, you know, probably there's definitely times we push too far and uh, we got away with it. We got we got good luck. I'd rather and it'll never be the case that we don't have to rely on luck, but that'll never be the case. You can, you know, Uli Steck was, you know, about as highly evolved and sophisticated and educated and defined alpinist that's ever existed and uh yeah he got some bad luck right we don't know what happened but something happened yeah yeah what are you most proud of in your life being a father right on yeah being a father who uh is not going anywhere and still providing for his daughters and yeah yeah we'll never walk away right (laughs) that's for my family that's huge yeah so 
Oh, kudos. Um, so you've got a lot of years left in the game, of course. <laughs> but how do you want to be remembered? How does Barry Blanchard want to be remembered, if at all? <laughs> I want to be remembered as a good father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully as a good man. And I'd like to be remembered, hopefully, as uh, writing some more books. And hopefully some of them are good. Well, I hope you do. Thank you. Because the the book is astounding. I encourage everyone to get it and read it. There's a lot of insights and, you know, instruction there for life that I think is very well done. So I hope you keep writing. Yeah, well, I'll put in a plug because if you're not a reader, I did read it as an audio book. So if you want to drive right on and listen to my voice. Yeah, (laughs) it's a great voice. It's an awesome voice. But yeah, we can't thank you enough for coming and sharing your story and the take home for me. Last night is the last show of our, you know, 2017, 18 winter film series. And it's, you know, next year we'll be going on 13. And we have all these amazing people coming, these high end um, electric people like yourself. And, and just to be in front of a crowd of hundreds and hundreds of people and be willing to say, take the time out of your life to tell the people in your life that you love them. I thought that was pr- very, very beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lesson that cost me dearly, so Mm -hmm. yeah, do it. Yeah, (laughs) do it now. I hope you enjoyed listening to Barry and his wisdom as much as I did. When I started Afterglow, I didn't know how it would be received. Your amazing and humbling feedback has made one of the most fulfilling and artistic endeavors of my life that much better. Afterglow is my gift to whoever would like to listen, and I can't wait to bring you even more revealing, inspiring, and insightful conversations in Season 3. Afterglow is recorded at the Pink Palace Studio on the west shore of Lake Tahoe. It is produced by myself and my wife, Kristen Hanna, who also edits all Afterglow episodes. Miles Heaps was the sound engineer for Barry's chat. The music of season two of Afterglow is courtesy of the Cowboys Fiddle. Afterglow is available on any podcast listening platform. Please help us spread the good word by subscribing, reviewing, and sharing with your friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The cat. Comedy. (laughs) Like the timing is impeccable.